your deep dive into authoritarianism and corruption in the era of Trump. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes to help inform others about these critical issues. I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein, and my guest today is Natasha Merle of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. In July, her organization became the seventh to file a lawsuit against the Trump administration on the grounds that Trump's new voting commission was formed with the intent to discriminate against voters of color in violation of the Constitution. In 2016, Donald Trump lost the popular vote. Unable to accept that more voters cast their ballots for Hillary Rodham Clinton of their own free will, Trump revived the old Republican canard of voter fraud to explain his poor showing at the polls. Republicans have long used allegations of voter fraud as a cover for voter suppression, specifically of people of color and poorer people who are statistically more likely to vote for Democrats. In the wake of the Nazi terrorist attack in Charlottesville and the subsequent massive demonstration against hate in Boston, it's a good time to reflect on the ways in which white supremacy shapes our country's most basic institutions, including voting. Natasha, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What is the evidence, if any, that voter fraud is a problem? Actually, there is no evidence uh, that voter fraud is a problem. Voter fraud or allegations of voter fraud have long been used as a pretext um, to support measures to further restrict voting. But there is no evidence that voter fraud appears on a wide scale level as many uh, individuals, including the president, have alleged. In one of the legal documents on your website, I saw that over 20 million votes have been cast in Alabama since the turn of the century, and in that time, only one case of voter impersonation has showed up. That's a really striking statistic. Yeah, it definitely is, and I'm glad you brought that up, because in Alabama, they passed the photo ID requirement, uh, which now requires voters in Alabama to have a certain form of ID in order to vote. But, you know, we know from just this past election, over 100,000 Alabamians did not have the required ID to vote. And these were registered voters who were otherwise eligible to vote. But because they were they did not have the uh, required ID, they were not allowed to vote. And there's twice as many black and Latinos uh, in Alabama who lack the required ID than white voters in Alabama. And why are Republicans so obsessed with this? You know, I can't, I can't speak to exactly why Republicans uh, may or may not be obsessed with this. I mean, I think what we, we do know is that voter fraud or allegations of voter fraud have long been used as a pretext to disenfranchise certain groups of Americans. But to this date, you know, there has not been any uh, widespread evidence of voter fraud. Um, and, it, and it's just used, instead, these laws are passed and they're used to restrict voters' access to the franchise. Can you tell us a bit about the COBAC Commission? Yes. So in May of 2017, May of this year, President Trump signed an executive order that put into place what he calls the Presidential Election Integrity Commission. Uh, And this commission is chaired by Vice President Pence and by Secretary of State COBOC, Secretary of State of Kansas COBOC. And this commission is put in place to investigate 
voter fraud. And so again, you know, investigate this allegation, this unfounded, unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. Um, and it's quite interesting or quite telling that President Trump has been claiming without any factual support that three to five million, you know, he said, quote unquote, illegals uh, voted in this election. And but for that, he would have won the popular vote. And then after he becomes president, he puts together this commission to investigate this supposed voter fraud. And the commission is headed not only by Kobach and Pence, but other commission members who similarly agree with the president and similarly believe that voter fraud exists on a wide-scale level. A number of members and the president himself have stated that voter fraud happens and, or that quote-unquote illegals are voting illegally or, or voting without being able to, and that large-scale voter fraud has happened in urban areas, you know, pointing to black and brown communities. What is the Cobalt Commission actually doing day-to-day in terms of its investigation? Do we know? Well, right now what we know is they've had one meeting and they have another meeting coming up in this fall. What we know so far is that Cobalt has sent out a request for voter files from each state, uh, for the voter data that each state keeps of its voters. And we know that he's made that request. Some states are complying. Some states are saying that they're not going to comply. Some states are saying they're going to comply on a limited basis. But we know that with this data, what Kobach and the commission intends to do is to compare this state voter files to federal databases, including databases such as the Department of Homeland Security, to try to pinpoint people that they allege are not eligible voters. However, you know, COBAC has tried to, you know, has a similar program, um, the similar cross-check program, and that program, we know, is full of errors and leads to a lot of false positives, and those false positives, people who they're going to allege are not eligible to vote, many times are Black and Latino voters. And so I think they're trying to do on a wider scale is compare the state voter files to the federal databases to see if they can pinpoint people with an unreliable method to determine if they're not eligible voters. What's your organization doing to counter the Cobot uh, Commission? So we have, of course, like you mentioned, uh, we have a lawsuit against the Cobot Commission. We filed a, lo- a lawsuit against the Voter Fraud Commission um, last month. Our main, uh, one of our claims are, is that of intentional discrimination. Our, there's many lawsuits against the Voter Fraud Commission. Our lawsuit is the only one that pretty much calls the commission what it is, and it is a a tool to discriminate and to chill Black and Latino voters and to deny them access to the ballot. We also allege that the president has exceeded his authority in creating such a commission, that he does not have the constitutional or um, statutory authority to create such a commission to investigate, quote-unquote, voter fraud. And we also allege that the commission is not fairly balanced as required, given the membership of the commission. You know, we're also doing a public education. We want voters. Uh, already, we're seeing the chilling effect of the commission. A number of voters have expressed that they want to cancel their registration. A number of voters have already canceled their re- registration throughout the state. We've heard reports from Florida to Colorado 
to uh, Georgia, to other states, to New York. Recently, voters wanted to know how they could cancel their registration once New York stated that they were going to hand over the information to the commission. And so, you know, obviously here at the Legal Defense Fund, we want everybody to remain registered, to register to vote, and to cast their ballots, as is their right. And so we have public education to encourage voters to do just that. You mentioned that this exceeds Trump's powers. Can you explain what powers he's trying to invoke? He's put together a commission, like I said, headed by Kobach and other members who already believe that voter fraud exists. And he's not, he did not put together a commission uh, that will simply advise him. He's put together a commission that's going to investigate. uh, The president does not have the authority to put together a commission that will investigate voters for voter fraud. And so by doing this cross-check, they are investigating voters to see if there are any ineligible voters who are attempting to vote or who appear on the voter rolls. And so that is um, exceeding the president's uh, executive authority. Furthermore, Congress has already spoken about this. Congress has already put in place a manner in which it can investigate voter fraud and to, you know, maintain the integrity of the election. And that is through the Election Assistance Commission, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. And that commission is a bipartisan commission. And with oversight that has the authority to investigate voter fraud and to investigate the elections to ensure their integrity. And so by bypassing this bipartisan commission already put in place by Congress, and that has the proper oversight, the president has exceeded his authority. It's a really important point. I feel like that hasn't been stressed a lot in a lot of the coverage about this. Suppose the commission goes ahead and does its investigation and comes up with a report with these you know, blacklist of supposed voter fraudsters. What happens next? Do they have any legal authority to do anything with that list? What we think is going to happen is that, yes, they're going to come up maybe with a list of, of individuals or, you know, allegations of people being on voter rolls who are ineligible to be on voter rolls. And from there, the commission will make, we think, um, is likely recommendations for further restrictive voting laws. So, for example, they may further support photo ID laws on a wider level. They may support or they may recommend laws that require proof of citizenship in order to register to vote. And so once they have their evidence or once they have what they think is evidence of voter fraud, and, you know, we think that it's likely that they will come to that since the commission is highly skewed with people who already believe in voter fraud, Once they have what they think is evidence of voter fraud, we think the next step for them would be to make recommendations that will further restrict access to the franchise. In very broad strokes, what have the courts said about voter ID laws specifically in the past? As I said earlier, in the Alabama case, the Alabama voter ID case, that is currently being litigated. However, there is the Texas photo ID case in which the district court said that that photo ID law was passed with the intent to discriminate. That law, the Texas photo ID law, was found to have intentionally discriminated against Black and Latino voters in Texas. Should we anticipate that photo ID cases are going to be coming back before the Supreme Court anytime soon? I think these laws are going to continue to be passed. I think states are going to, some states are going to continue 
to try to require um, these type of photo ID laws, and they're going to continue using this allegation of widespread voter fraud to pass these laws and to implement these laws. I think at LDF, we are going to continue to combat those type of false allegations and to combat any laws that intentionally discriminate against Black and Latino voters. We can say that Trump did this out of his humiliation about losing the popular vote, but the reality is that this is part of a long history of voter suppression, as you're saying, through allegations of voter fraud. How far does it go back? Is it something that stretches all the way back to, say, the Voting Rights Act, or is it more recent than that? So even though throughout history, there has never the idea of widespread voter fraud, that has never been proven, that has never been shown. But you're right that this goes even before... Trump's loss of the popular vote, literacy tests and poll taxes. Some states use the the reasoning of to prevent voter fraud to pass literacy tests and poll taxes. But of course, we knew those the poll tax and the literacy test it worked to disenfranchise black voters. But even back then, the idea was we're doing this to combat voter fraud. And so this this does have a long history of needing to be combated and being used to disenfranchise people of color. Uh, and, you know, LDF, the Legal Defense Fund, has been fighting this issue. We continue to fight it through the Alabama photo ID case, through the Texas photo ID case. And in a way, having to go to the DMV during certain hours to get your photo ID is like a modern-day poll tax, right? I mean, it costs you to get there. You might have to pay for your ID itself. And that's, is that legally important? I, we, that is important because that is a burden. That is putting a burden on voters. Uh, like you said, many voters in Alabama do not have transportation, and they have to pay people to provide them transportation. That takes money. They may have to take time off of work to go to the DMV at certain hours, which is a loss of money. Um, they have to pay for the photo ID, which is also money they may not have. And so this is an extreme burden on our otherwise eligible voters, and this is a burden that weighs more heavily on Black and Latino voters in Alabama than on white voters. Can you talk a bit about the plaintiff in the lawsuit that you're working on now, the first one that you mentioned? I think her name is Ms. Ambrosio. She seems like she has quite an interesting personal story. Yes, uh, Ms. Ambrosio uh, is currently a college student. She was a high school student um, when she first became a part of this litigation. Um, Ambrosio did not have an ID. She had an expired passport, so she had no other form of ID. She did not drive. She did not really know how to drive. I think maybe she had taken one class and then never drove again. She goes to school. She, or When she first became a plaintiff, she, went, she was in high school, and she had extracurriculars after school. Her father would work from sometimes 3, 4 o'clock in the morning to the late afternoon. Her mother would work from like around 3 p.m. to late at night. And so there was never a time when her parents could take her to the DMV to get an ID. And furthermore, she had after-school extracurricular activities, as she should. And so Ms. Ambrosio um, never had an opportunity or a way to get to the DMV in order to get an ID so that she could vote. And she did want to vote, but because of the photo ID law, she was denied the opportunity to vote in March of 2016. What are authorities doing as part of voter suppression at the DMV level to make it harder for people to access the IDs that they need? So I think one of the hardest things about getting the ID uh, for individuals in Alabama is the transportation. 
Before, Alabama had actually closed a number of the DMVs in the Black Belt, which made it more, which required people to travel even further to get an ID if they were trying to get an ID to vote. And so I, I think just having the limited hours or the hours that they have, which do not allow for everybody to have an opportunity to go get the ID, and the, the having to travel to the DMV to actually get the ID is quite inhibitive for some voters. Beyond voter ID, what are some other voter fraud allegation-related techniques that governments are using to discourage people from voting? I think right now, um, since the Shelby County decision, I think the photo ID law is the one LDF, at least, that we are combating the most, like I said, through the Texas photo ID case and through the Alabama photo ID case. I think those are the ones that we have our eye on the most currently. In terms of the balance of the Supreme Court, are there judges that you're particularly worried about in terms of their stance on voting rights? I I think all judges on the court whether um, appointed by a Democrat or a Republican, should should see the importance of every American having access to the franchise. And we think that a lot of these cases that federal courts are finding intentional discrimination, um, we think those are the correct decisions and those are the evident decisions based on what state legislators are doing, based on what the state is doing. And so... You know, whether the judges are appointed by Democrats or by Republicans, we think each judge uh, should see the importance of ensuring that every American has access to the franchise. Intentional discrimination is a really difficult standard to prove, especially if you don't have access to, you know, tapes of people expounding on their intentions. As a lawyer, how do you go about proving something elusive like deliberate intent to discriminate in a case like this? Yeah, so that, you know, that's a good point. And, you know, sometimes you do have legislators, state legislators saying on the record that they don't want quote-unquote illegals or quote-unquote aborigines voting. Sometimes you have those type of statements on the record. Sometimes you have emails, but a lot of times you don't. And a lot of times you are required to rely upon the circumstantial evidence. So, for example, in Alabama and the legislator, we know that the Black Caucus and the Alabama legislator informed the other sponsors of the bill, of the photo ID bill, that this would impact their constituents, that it would be inhibitive for their constituents, that it would um, disproportionately impact Black and Latino voters. And so the, the state legislator knew that this bill would have a disproportionate impact on Black and Latino voters. So that is just kind of part of this circumstantial evidence that you would want to put forward or that you could put forward to show that this law was passed with the intent to discriminate against the Black and Latino voters in the state. That's really interesting that you can use testimony and things that are presented to the legislature while they're deliberating about passing a law in future legal cases. Yes, because like you said, a lot of times, you know, you may not have legislators saying certain things on the record that would go to intentional discrimination. But if you if you look at other circumstances, perhaps you can also look at how long the bill was debated. If the legislators cut off debate quickly, like they didn't want the bill to be debated, that could also kind of support your your claim of intentional discrimination. 
it just goes to show how important it is for people who want to be active to go and participate in these kinds of things at the legislature. Here at Rewire, we have a lot of coverage of people who are active in the fight for reproductive rights, and we're always covering hearings at legislatures of people getting up and speaking. I think a lot of people sometimes get discouraged, thinking, oh, it's an all-Republican legislature. This is never going to sway how they vote. So I think it's really empowering what you just said about that You know, your testimony before that legislature could come back in a court case someday and make a big difference. Yeah, as I, yes, exactly. And as I just said, you know, that, that could be if the legislature, if they knew or if they had, if they were told that this may disproportionately impact the Black and Latino constituents of other legislators, that's important. That's important for us in a court case. And also, furthermore, I would say also in Alabama, the Black legislators um, asked the sponsors, you know, show us proof of voter fraud. You're saying that this bill, this little ID bill, is necessary in order to combat voter fraud, and they asked for evidence in cases of voter fraud, um, and they were given none. So, you know, that is also perhaps you could use that as circumstantial evidence that voter fraud was not the real reason that the, the legislator passed this bill. Is there any technological forefront of voter fraud allegations? We've seen the use of databases and before that caging lists and stuff like that. Is there anything, any new threats on the horizon? You know, I, I don't know if there are any new threats on the horizon. What I do know is that the cross-check program is problematic and that many people may not be aware of why it's problematic. Um, and we make and we discuss and we allege in our complaint why such comparison of databases is problematic and why you're going to get a large number of false positives. You may you may think you have identified people who are ineligible voters who are on voter rolls, but why that may be incorrect, and also why a large number of those people who are going to be erroneously identified will be Black and Latino voters. If somebody wants to get involved in their community about defending voting rights, what are some things they can do? A lot of things that people do is to volunteer to be poll workers during their local elections. Um, I think that is a big thing that people often do, as well as volunteering to help people to register to vote. I think that is going to be a, a big thing. A lot of organizations already register people to vote and have volunteer canvassers who assist in registering people to vote. And at this time where Americans may be chilled, um, voters may be chilled from wanting to register to vote because they don't want to get caught up in this cross-check, they don't want their information being sent to the commission, I think we need to do more education about voter registration and ensuring that people continue to register to vote and that voters don't start even more, start canceling their registration. Did you see that front page story in the New York Times about Look Ahead America, that voting group that's founded by former Trump aides? Um, I saw that something like that came out today. I have not had a chance to review it. It's really disturbing because, I mean, they're claiming that they're going to be using outreach to register unregistered voters that meet a certain psychodemographic profile is the word that they use. But they're also recruiting so-called poll watchers to go to the polls. Yeah, and I think around the 20, November 2016 election, Trump also encouraged people to go watch their polls 
into a, a number of rallies. He said, you know, go watch your polls. Don't let this election be taken from us. You know what I mean. And so he would say things like that. And that was quite disturbing because, one, we do know what he means. He means to go watch black and Latino areas because he believes and he alleges that voter fraud occurs in black and Latino areas, but also to to encourage people to go out untrained and to watch people vote and to harass and intimidate people, that's quite troubling. And obviously that's not what people should be doing. If you if you want to volunteer, get with a local organization that can train you on helping people register to vote. And that is one way you could do it, but it should not be an intimidation tactic. It should not be harassment. Everybody has the freedom to go, you know, exercise their right to vote and they should not have a fear of being followed, being watched or being harassed by somebody when they try to go cast their ballots. In the wake of the Charlottesville attacks, I think it really drives home how how close that history really is. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, what we saw this past weekend in Charlottesville was horrible. And, you know, many people and Republicans and legislators have come out to denounce neo-Nazis and white supremacy. But I think that lawmakers need to and should do more. You know, it's inconsistent to denounce white supremacy, but not repudiate voter ID laws, to not repudiate the Muslim ban, to not repudiate the quote-unquote wall. These are all things that support and are grounded in white supremacy. The photo ID bills disproportionately impact black and brown voters. It disproportionately prevent black and Latino voters from voting. Um, And so you cannot say you are not for white supremacy, but at the same time be for disenfranchising black and Latino voters. Do you have any confidence that the Justice Department will act against voter intimidation in the elections ahead? You know, the the Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, we hope that they would. We hope that they would combat to denounce any type of voter intimidation to ensure that voters are not being intimidated or harassed when they're at the polls. That would be our hope because they are, to a certain extent, the front line of ensuring that every American is able to cast their ballot. Natasha, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for recommended reading. Hand-picked selections to help you make sense of the bewildering political moment. This week, we're technically doing recommended viewing. Al Reeve of Vice News embedded with Nazis in Charlottesville during the Unite the Right rally to make an unforgettable documentary called Charlottesville, Race and Terror. Reeve got remarkable access to Nazi leaders like Chris Cantwell and David Duke, and she was at the scene when the white supremacists drove into the crowd of counter-protesters, killing one woman and injuring 19 others. Cantwell has since become known as the crying Nazi because of a video he made of himself blubbering about how scared he is that there's a warrant out for his arrest. Cantwell first rose to national prominence with an appearance on the Colbert Report, which documented his unrelenting harassment campaign of meter maids in Keene, New Hampshire. We'll include links to all three in the show notes. Live free or die, baby! is produced by Nora Hurley for Rewire Radio. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti. Our theme music is Dark Alliance, performed by Darcy James Argue's Secret Society. And I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. 
Tweet your suggestions, comments, and questions to at Beierstein, B-E-Y-E-R-S-T-E-I-N, on Twitter. See you next week.